0: Hey, everyone. David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow-Prior and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And we have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash closereads, where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful that you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by... Some friends of mine, Heidi White, who you know regularly from here on the show, Josh Gibbs, who you know from his writing over at the Cersei Institute uh, website, and then also perhaps from his books like How to Be Unlucky and Something They Will Not Forget, and from his podcast, Proverbial. And then our friend Karen Swallow Pryor, who is uh, someone who I'm, I'm guessing, if you've listened to this podcast, that you probably have read one of her books, maybe all of them, but she is the author of... Uh, Two annotated editions, most recently, of Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness. Uh, those are through b right, Karen? Correct. And then she's also working on uh, annotated editions of Frankenstein and Jane Eyre. And uh, of course, that brings us to the book that we're discussing on this podcast. We are here to discuss Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Before we do that, though, I need to welcome Josh, Karen, and Heidi to the show. So welcome to Close Reads. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks, Thanks a lot, David.
0: It's great to be here with you guys. Karen and Heidi did uh, *Sense and Sensibility* with us last summer. So, if you are a longtime *Close Reads* listener, then you have you have heard Karen and and Heidi uh, debate literature together, discuss debate. You know, it's a fine line there. This is Josh's uh, first appearance on on *Close Reads*, though, right, this Josh?
2: Inaugural voyage.
0: <laughs> is that true? That is true. First time. Okay. You've been on. You have your own podcast, of course, on the network, and you've been on lots of other shows but i i i'm surprised i don't know how, that that was a mistake we should have done this sooner i apologize
1: oh no matter i mean when i saw <laughs> that that you were going to cover this book i couldn't wait to get in on it because it's one of my favorites to teach
0: well okay let's let's just dive right in and talk about your relationships with this book because you all have taught this to some degree is that right in the classroom yes Heidi, do you have you
2: I've never taught this book before to students. No, I've okay. done it in book clubs with like new readers.
0: Okay. Okay. Got it. So, what surprised me actually, and I'm this is completely a problem with me, but uh, I was surprised at how much affection there is for this book. In part because I've always had something of a difficult time with this book. So, I will be the uh, Frankenstein skeptic. I'll play that role for this for this series, I suppose. It's not the Franken skeptic.
1: I, I'm, must,
0: I'm just gonna, I'm just going I'm just going to move on. <laughs> I uh uh it's not that it's not I should say that I think this book is is not well done or bad. I would never presume to say something like that. I have just had a hard time with it. So perhaps the three of you can win me over. So Josh uh you said I'm going to start with you because you said this is one of your favorite books to teach. So I've got two questions for you. Where did your first experience with this book occur when and where and then why do you love teaching it so much and then karen i'll ask you the same question
1: i think i taught it for the first time 11 years ago and it's a book that i think i've taught every year since then and i've often taught it to multiple sections so i think that uh, i was tallying it up before the show started i think i read and taught this book uh, maybe 14 or 15 times so i know it fairly well. And I'll just be quiet
0: that, then. You can just lead this conversation.
1: I, I'm going to say that and then I'm going to make some error in identifying characters and just flub some plot point um, every show for the next um, six, <laughs> seven years. <or> <laughs> I, I love to teach it to high school students because it's written by someone who was scarcely older than a high school student hmm. and who had a tumultuous life, a life that was tumultuous in a Sort of conventionally romantic sense of of the word, Mary Shelley was a girl who, I mean, from a certain standpoint, had it all, and from another standpoint, had nothing. She was, um, uh, you know, the the girlfriend, and then later the wife of this uh, talented, good-looking um, young man who was entailed to a, a pretty sizable fortune. And, um, and yet she lived a a very miserable life. Um, she had a sort of, I, from a certain standpoint, only from a very shallow standpoint, the ultimate, um, you know, romantic paramour, but it did not go well for her. Um, and if you were to ask, I mean, if you were to ask a a shallow person, uh, you know, (laughs) what do you want out of a, what do you want out of a romantic relationship? They might say something like, well, I want somebody who's rich and good looking and talented. And, uh, and Mary got that and it did not work out for her. Mm. And she catalogs the reasons why it didn't work out for her in this book. Mm. Uh, The book is uh, a pretty stinging rebuke of Percy Shelley and, and where, where her own romance failed. So, for all those reasons, I think it's a great book to teach to high school students. Hmm.
0: So, Karen, you teach it with college students, um, and then right. you also you have decided to commit a large portion of the next months of your life to, to producing this annotated version. So, again, the same question: Where did your first, you know, where did you discover it, and how did you decide that you wanted to to spend this much time with it throughout your, your life?
3: Yeah, I was trying to remember when I first um, read this book for myself, I have this really old paperback edition, um, which I might have gotten in high school or college. Um, it's the 1831. And that's the one that I've mainly used. I'm actually um, just for this podcast and the book, um, reading the 1818 for the first time. Hmm. So um, so I'm looking at, you know, I, I'm discovering the differences. Um, but In teaching it, I have taught it always in, uh, let's see, always in my English novel class. And that class studies the development of the form of the novel. So we read the novels chronologically, and I select the novels sort of based on, on... on their place in the development of the genre, but also their reflection of, you know, the neoclassical period, then the, you know, the romantic period and Victorian and so forth. And so, you know, Frankenstein is the romantic, the single romantic novel um, that I teach in that course. Um, And yeah, True Confessions, I'm about as anti-romantic, both capital (laughs) R and small r, as you can get um I it's taken me years to develop any love for the romantics. <laughs> um and I'm you know I'm learning learning to appreciate them more as I as I mellow in age. Um and but what I Should I've we spend always-
0: some time going into why you didn't <laughs> just do a little bit of a you know podcast there literary therapy session on why you didn't like the romantics? Yeah
3: yeah yeah we we could that would be interesting <laughs> um uh yeah that um yeah well it's be well the short answer is because I read um Madame Bovary when I was nineteen years old um and it mm. changed my life um but that's another <laughs> we could we could do a podcast on that um but I've always loved Frankenstein because mm. even though it is uh, it, and I'm always very transparent with my students, I tell them you know. My prejudices and my biases and my preferences. And I say, you know, I'm anti romantic. Uh, the romantics were scoundrels. They were terrible, horrible people. Um, and, uh, but yet, as, as, oh, Josh so that's the talking, reason. Well, yes, but it comes out in their work too, right? I mm. mean, you can't separate form from content. Um, but sh- this is a romantic novel that interrogates romanticism like nothing. Else, I mean, it's mm. crit- critical of so many of of these romantic ideals. At the same time, that she is obviously, you know, living this, you know, romantic in within this romantic worldview. So I find it a terribly complicated um, text in the best way. Um, she's a romantic, embracing romanticism, but also so critical of it. And it's and and it's, that's a model for all of us within whatever worldview or mindset we're in. Um, and then d- all the literary qualities that we'll get to. So um mm. I approach it as an anti-romantic and then I fall in love with it. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Heidi, what about you? What is your what's your history with this book?
2: Uh let's see. When did I first read this book? Probably in my twenties. This book delights me for a lot of reasons. Um and I think as Josh pointed, out, I really like that Josh pointed out that it was written by a young woman, uh, probably a genius, but it's one of those books that has this very curious kind of alchemy of, it's actually, if you are learning how to read closely and learning how to read literature, and this is why I've read this with adults more than students, because in I've, I teach younger students, so you can't assign Frankenstein to fourth, fifth graders, so I read it with adults, mostly, who have come to me and said, what should I read? I really want to read literature. I want to join your book club. What should we read? And I say Frankenstein first, because like I said, it has this like curious alchemy of uh, it's actually pretty on the nose with a lot of stuff, but it's done very, very well. And so you can trace these thre- literary threads through, throughout the novel. Um, and so i find it very compelling and useful for new l- people who want to read literature and are kind of dipping their toes in the water um and i just find it delightful there's so many things to notice as uh as karen said it's a co- it's actually a really complex novel so you can read it from a psychological perspective you can read it from kind of this public societal perspective or uh literary like it just has these multiple levels of interpretation that are really really fun to trace so i'm curious where this conversation is going to go
0: Are so are you getting at that there's this sense that what shelley was trying to say is sort of obvious it's on the surface and yet it's there's a lot of subtlety in the novel is that what you meant by it's i
2: um, maybe i so it, let's say you pick a thread like the first paragraph of the novel let's trace nature or light or something throughout the entire novel and you can find it and it's and it's complex but it's easy to find let's say you want to read it as a treatise on education you can do that and it's it's not difficult to find those big ideas and those big threads that go throughout the novel but they're actually pretty complicated. So when I teach, not teach, when I do this novel with first time, you know, literary readers, I will always say, okay, so let's talk throughout the novel every time we get together. Who is the monster? That's that's a big question in this novel. Who Mm -hmm. is the actual monster here? Uh, And it's not difficult to discuss that and to find that throughout the novel, the complexity of that. It's easy to kind of dig into that question but it's still a very complex and nuanced question throughout the novel um so i i think i really like it for that particular purpose um mm. and then i every time i've i've read it i find something new in it so um yeah that's why i love it
0: well this first episode there's there's some context stuff i i, th- mm. I think is at least worth uh, addressing uh, there's a the story behind the the conception of this novel the creation of it is is of course pretty famous josh do you do you think you know the 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 legend behind frankenstein well enough i maybe legends the wrong word but we'll go with it the legend behind the uh the story of this novel well enough to to tell it to our listeners
1: yeah absolutely um so uh depending on where you want to start i would just start in um the year without a summer when um, Mount Tambora erupted uh, and I think that was eighteen sixteen or 1817 I forget which maybe 1817 and when Mount Tambora erupted this huge black cloud of ash uh, moved over all of Europe and uh, the summer became known as the year without a summer because there was no sunlight that would get through nothing grew it was a sort of Um, Mild famine. Uh, And during this summer, Mary Shelley, uh, Percy Shelley, and uh, I believe Mary's half sister, Claire, were hanging out with Lord Byron at uh, Lake Geneva. And it was uh, supposed to be a sort of idyllic setting, but it was awful. Uh, Lake Geneva, the beauty of Lake Geneva is described many times in the novel Frankenstein. I don't know how much of that beauty Mary actually saw when she was there, um, because it was sort of a a dismal time to be there. Hmm. And so all the people in this little coterie of friends stayed inside and they amused themselves by telling ghost stories. There was actually a challenge, I believe, that Lord Byron issued where they would all write a ghost story. And uh, Frankenstein is the book that's born out of that challenge. So there's that mythological (laughs) foundation of the novel. But at the same time, um, Mary's first child uh, died only a few days after it was born. And she was haunted by dreams uh, for a long time after of waking in the night and finding the child cold by her side and then taking the child to a fire and holding the corpse of this infant near the child and uh, trying to rub warmth back into the corpse and, and revive it. And, um, and so, of course, we see that uh, that language, the language from Mary's diary appears often in the novel. The novels may be a little. I'll throw this in on the side. The novels rather fascinating um, for anyone who studied Mary's life, because Mary's life is one of the more well documented literary lives from the nineteenth century. She kept a meticulous diary, uh, as did her half sister, as did Percy, as did her father. Like everyone, kept a meticulous diary, and so the amount of knowledge that we have about Mary's life is is. Rather remarkable, there might not be a month of the woman's life that is not accounted for before the age of, of thirty um, given how much we know of her
0: Karen does that fact make it easier or harder to do an annotated <laughs> version of Frankenstein <laughs>
3: uh-huh, both I think <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's interesting go ahead, Josh could continue your uh, your telling of the legend
1: oh well um well there's I mean those two legendary i mean just Boilerplate accounts of the authoring of the novel. Uh, When the novel came out, because it was dedicated to William Godwin, uh, a lot of people believed that Percy had written it. Um, And that's one of the reasons why uh, we suspect today that the book got such a lousy uh, initial reading, was because everyone hated Percy Shelley by the time (laughs) this novel came out. And suspecting that he was the one who wrote it, critics tore it apart. Uh, Percy Shelley had a long history of being a, a public miscreant. He was kicked out of Oxford after only six months um, for writing a pamphlet on um, atheism. He wrote another novel that has a plot that w- would strike anyone as being eerily similar to the works of the you know the Marquis de Sade. Uh, he was a he was a real creep in his uh, in his early days, and everyone knew that he had abandoned a pregnant wife, and and just everyone hated him. Um so when the novel came out, it did very poorly with critics, um, who uh, accused the the novel of having the same kind of lurid quality that uh that some of Percy's early novels did. He wrote a novel called Zestrazi, uh that if you read the plot, I don't think that history made much of it, but um I mean it kind of exonerates a nihilistic worldview, just broadly speaking. Um So it wasn't until, uh, you know, several decades later that the book really achieved any fame. And that was, you know, after I think Percy died and it was widely known that Mary was the one who wrote it. And Mary became a more celebrated figure in her own right, not just because of her connection with with Percy.
0: Well, so she produced... Well, let me ask this. Is there anything else you want to add to to what he's saying there, Karen, before we...
3: Um, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, I just, he's, he's hit on, um, a number of things that we're going to see in, in the novel, this anxiety over, um, relationships, over parenting relationships and birth and death, um, and again, we'll probably there probably be a lot of occasions to get into more of the biographical information. But but um, Josh presented a pretty um, G rated version <laughs> of <laughs> their lifestyle. Um, maybe I'll up it a little bit to PG thirteen and and uh, or, or R even. But um, there were you know. Uh, um, there were a lot of sexual liaisons going on among and between the parties that he's already mentioned in many other ones, um, and uh, it get yeah it's it, it's again this is this is why the novel is so um, is so interesting because because it's written by someone who embraced this lifestyle but yeah clearly was wrestling with its with its implications. Um, so I, I won't I won't say more than that now. Um, but except I I love this idea that the novel was viewed one way when understood to be written by Percy and another way when understood to be written by Mary because this is actually a a, a tension uh I mean you know the a purely um formalist critic would not take any of those things into consideration at all and and there's there we would just look at the work of art as a work of art uh which I think is Fine. Um, but on the other hand, context is everything, you know, right? So so it really does matter. Um, in some ways, who wrote a novel and what they were trying to express and say, and where that came from, um, and even in the same way that we have to j- learn to judge literature um, by its own the standards of its own time, intention with our standards today when it comes to um, moral or uh, racial or other social issues. So, anyway, there's there's just um, those are some things I wanted to raise um, as we go along.
0: <clears throat> well, I just want to say you know, at any and any of you can jump in and respond to other, other things people are saying as well. You don't need to, you know, just just throwing that out there. Uh, the audience is, you know, yelling at their your their phones anyway, half the time. So if they can do it, you can do it too. So we get this version, the version that we're going to be discussing primarily is the 1818 edition. And that would be the edition that didn't have Mary Shelley's name on it, is, is my understanding. Then there's the 1831 edition, Karen, which you mentioned that you've primarily studied. Um, just before i have you explain a little bit about you know the differences and how that came to be josh and heidi which have you primarily taught the 1818 18 or 1831 you uh
1: 1831 yes uh, the 1831 okay
0: um i was you know looking around and it seemed like there were just a lot more versions of the 1831 more readily available like uh, different bookstores even on even on amazon it's it's much easier to find the 1831 so karen um When we were talking about it, you suggested the 1818, and you said you're using that for for your annotated book. So I'm curious, one, if you could explain a little bit about why you think it's worth prioritizing and valuing this 1818 edition, um, and then also what makes the 1831 edition different than this one?
3: Okay, lots of full disclosures here. Uh, number one, the reason why I wanted to choose the 1818 edition for this discussion is completely selfish. Um, <laughs> it's because it's because I. I am now reading that one for the first time for this discussion um, and for my edition. And the reason I chose it for my edition is that I consulted with some readers. Actually, I think it probably some of the Close Reads readers um, about which, um, which edition they wanted to see me do right um hmm. and and a lot of them said just as you as you mentioned that the 1818 18 one is is harder to find that most of the cheap paperback versions like the one that that i i have and teach from and read have had for years and years decades um is the 1831 so i wanted you know i want to provide something that's not out there as much um and i also want to uh you know have an understanding, a better understanding of both versions. Um, and I don't know all of the details and, and maybe some of you, Josh and Heidi, maybe you do, but essentially that the 1818 version is, and this is another reason why I wanted to use it for my edition is it's, it's more scandalous. <laughs> um, you know, Mary Shelley did become more uh, conservative in her life over her life, uh, understandably. Um, and this novel was roundly criticized, um, and, uh, considered scandalous. And so some of the changes that she made, uh, sort of softened some of those rough more scandalous edges um and i and and that tells us more about who mary shelley became and 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 wh- who she matured into and that's valuable and important but um it's also i think just a little bit more interesting to look at you know uh the the artist as a young woman um and and what this work reveals about the life she was living at the time she was uh writing it and the world she lived in
0: Hmm. Well, Heidi, you mentioned earlier that you, you use the word genius uh, in connection to Mary Shelley, and as both as has been mentioned several times, she was young when she wrote this book. Uh, she was what around twenty years old when it, when it was published. Um, is do you do you all agree that that um, that would be a fair word to use in describing the talent that Mary Shelley had, or is genius overstating it? Heidi, you used it, so you know, I'll make you defend it. I
2: think I said maybe a genius <laughs> qualified. Well,
0: don't, don't climb up. You know, Come on. Choose, pick a side.
2: Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I say that because I really don't know, but this is a remarkable achievement for someone at, at 20 years of age, especially in the time that she was living in. Um, and she was raised by remarkable people. Her, her, her parents were... Um, you know, dissenters. I mean, this was just such a tumultuous time in literary history and in history in general. Uh, And and I think the book captures the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of this age, like with with incredible accuracy uh, because she was right in the middle of it. She was right in this, you know, tumultuous center of these uh, young intellectuals raised by people, you know, Uh, an early feminist and um philosopher and so there's i i don't know if she was a genius but i do know that this was a remarkable achievement for someone of her age in her own in her time
0: josh do you think she was a genius
1: um I don't know. Genius is not a word that I feel particularly protective of. I mean, <laughs> I think that the novel, I think this novel's going to last for at least another 200 years. I, I, I don't see this novel ever going away. Uh, and so I think that in authoring it, Mary Shelley was certainly connected to some kind of divine knowledge, some kind of divine foresight uh and and she bears witness to the human condition in such a way that um that people you know 200 years later still think she's right and i think that that kind of observational power is superhuman and given that the word genius refers to a sort of divine spirit i mean I in that sense i guess i'm fine saying um you know, Milton, Austin, anybody who writes a novel that can last that long is connected to something supernatural. So sure, I'll go with genius.
0: <laughs> Karen, what do you think are the things that most um that, that in this novel most reveal her talent and her skills as a novelist? Hmm. Without I mean you yeah. don't have to spoil anything or uh, yeah, you yeah, can. I think, but.
3: I think my the- the the to me probably the central, the, the most important thing that does that is um her mastery of the form. A lot of people are surprised upon reading this novel for the first time, either whichever version it is, um, especially if they've only been exposed to sort of the pop culture versions of the story, to find that uh that it's it's in the form of letters, it's epistolary, uh, that there's this weird guy named Walton. Writing to a sister, Mrs. Saville, and and no one like we never hear of those people in the in the film versions or the pop culture versions, and so it's like it's, you know I think people sometimes might pick up this novel, begin reading, and think they've got the wrong book, um, because there are all these layers to the story that that aren't part of uh you know the the the, the two main figures that have grasped you know that are. Uh, grasped by the cultural imagination. So I think her, her literary genius is in the form, um, in using the epistolary style in, um, nesting, um, story within a story within a story, because what we'll find is that even the heart of the story, the the, the literal center of the story is a story about this other family (laughs) that, that's, you know, um, not connected at all to Frankenstein or his creature um, until, you know, until they encounter one another. But the, it, there are just so many layers to it. She uses form ingeniously to reveal this otherwise um, very unbelievable story. Um, it's the form that makes it so real and believable.
0: Are there any other works that, that you think that she was... Um... Uh, maybe responding to, or paying homage to, or imitating, or tell we just say influenced sure.
3: by? Well, I mean, uh, uh, the um, the earliest novels uh, in the 18th century, in particular, were often epistolary, and that's something that those of us who've primarily read like Victorian and later novels don't realize that the novel form grew out of an epistolary style. Um, that that was its form of realism um was to you know pretend that these are letters um written to someone just lightly edited or memoranda or something um and so that's a tradition that uh, that Shelley inherited um that would have you know would have that she would have um followed um and yet she uses it you know in kind of a brilliant a new way so hmm.
1: Josh go ahead i was just going to remark that um uh, in addition to to what Karen said that the two points of reference for the book, the legend of, or the myth of Prometheus on the one hand, um, mm. which you know accounts for the, you know, the subtitle of the book, uh, but also the, the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is a, is a mm. huge influence on the novel. Um, uh, Mary Shelley actually heard Coleridge perform Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in her living room when she was only four years old. And uh, made a huge impression on her. So, you know, 16 years later, she was still mulling it over and, and retelling it in her own way. I guess
0: that I guess that's more proof of what Heidi was saying about the uh, the influential family, literary family she was a part of. Yes, Karen, yeah. go ahead.
3: Yeah, and of course, uh, John uh, Milton's Paradise Lost is you know woven throughout this as well. Um, so all of this is quite a diverse, and eclectic range of influences on uh, Shelley. But she, they're not just you know they're not derivative. I mean, she takes these powerful influences in her in her life and her imagination and just trans transforms them into a new creation.
1: <laughs> Josh, go ahead. I walked over you there. No, I, just uh, one more comment on, uh, on the, the famous parents that she has. Um, I forget where I read this, but, but Coleridge was hardly the only famous person that Mary encountered when she was young. And I believe that, that any famous or even mildly famous progressive person who was passing through London made a sort of pilgrimage um, to William Godwin and, and to William Godwin's home to see the uh, the portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft that that hung on his wall and, and pay their respects. Um, and and Mary was trained from a very young age both by her parents and by the people who came to her home. She was kind of trained to live a famous life. Uh, she was brought mm-hmm. up with the expectation that people would care mm-hmm. about her life because people cared about her parents' life. And and so in that way, she was, um, well, she was just a very self-aware person from a very young age. Mm.
0: Hmm. Makes me think of a lot of people on social media right now. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the form. Because as Karen, you said, you talked about the epistolary nature. And um, I think, as you said, a lot of people might feel like they picked up the wrong book. It's something different than what they expected. So... Um. This is this question goes for all three of you because you each have. It's kind of interesting that you each have three different contexts that you tend to walk people through this book, Uh, similar but different. But when people first come to this, I think there might be the expectation of, "Well, can we get to the monster already?" You know. You know. I thought this was some kind of a, you know, gothic horror story of sorts or something like that. And we start with as as you said, Karen. There's this completely different family who this man who's writing letters to his sister and you know it's kind of interesting that he's exploring and it's clear that she's laying out all these themes but where do you begin with the structure of this book do you try to you know do you try to unpack all that right away do you think there's value in that or or do you wait to see how the epistolary nature and these themes that she's revealing through that form work themselves out or what what do you think the best approach is for that Karen I'll ask you first and then jump over to Heidi and then Josh
3: Sure. Well, when I teach this novel, I usually teach it um, in two or three classes which is which is fast i'm glad we're going to have more time but it's because i'm teaching you know things like tom jones and pamela in the same <laughs> you know 15 week semester um and so it yeah, a little bit take... shorter <laughs> yeah yeah uh exactly it seems that it feels like nothing um <laughs> so i wait until we're done with the whole story and then i i'll t- i talk about the frame narrative and i'll actually do a diagram on the board and and there are several you know several frames um several stories within the story within the story and so um i usually end up saying okay after we've completed the story okay what what difference does it make that this story is around this story and this story is around that one and um so it's something i find more fruitful to discuss after we've read the whole thing hmm.
0: H- heidi what about you how how would you approach that i mean we're obviously it's a different context here and we're going through it pretty slowly so
2: right I've, I've never focused on the form when doing it in a book club with other women. So, um, but it is a, what's, what's funny, Karen mentioned earlier that form and content are so intricately connected and, and you pick up on the form, even if you're focusing on the content, which I've always done Mm -hmm. when, when I'm reading this, because what's funny, Lucy, my daughter, she's 11. She saw me. Reading Frankenstein on the porch early this morning with my coffee, she walked by and she said, "Oh, I started reading that novel, or that book." She said, "I started reading that book," and I'm like, "You did?" Um, <laughs> so, and she said, "What? This is so funny. Exactly what you just said, Karen." She's like, "I there's nothing about a monster. It was just about some guy on a ship, and the sun never goes down." I thought it was boring, so I put it away. Um, and so then she started listening to it and she made it about a third of the way through. She got it on Audible without asking. So we had a conversation about that. Um, but she listened to it about a third of the way through. And then and she said this, it was, I couldn't, what did she say? It was more interesting to listen to. And I liked that it felt like listening to somebody's diary. Hmm. So even my 11-year-old daughter was drawn into it because of the form, right? The, the I pronouns, the descriptions, like she, she was more captive. She didn't finish there's a it.
0: Personal, there's a personal nature of yes. it It's appealing to and her. And
2: in a novel like this, I think that that is, you know, I started thinking about that. And um, I think that in a novel like this, that is... It is almost the only way that something like this would work. to be drawn mm-hmm. into uh, the internal experience of such a person, um, that that particular form is necessary, I think, for understanding victor frankenstein as i know we're going to get into later Mm -hmm. who he is and how he justifies himself in this pursuit um which is a huge contemplation of the novel and so that epistolary form uh is is super important for understanding it so i'm excited to get more into that because i've never focused on that before as karen has
0: it's it strikes me that even like you know, you read a, a noir novel or like a pulp novel or something like that, where you've got these, you know, detectives who are often telling the story in a first person narrative as as if they're relaying it in a journal. And it's almost like those books are following in the lineage of a book le- of books like this, or they're the, they're the early 20th century versions of epistolary novels or something like that. Um, and, and maybe that's the, you have to get into the, the, uh, to get into the head of a character in a novel that's got kind of a darker underbelly that that, that's the best way, the best entryway into that.
2: Sure. In which like the, the motivations of the character are so integral to the novel to understand what Victor Frankenstein was thinking. um, And to dig into that question of who is the monster, you need, you need to be behind his eyes so that he's not just the villain of the story, you know, which is a big question of the story.
0: So, Josh, as Karen said, there's this list book is an onion, right? There's layers upon layers, uh, and there's fr- you know f- multiple framing devices locked, you know, interlocking and and you know, burrowed like a nesting doll or something. So, how do you, with with high school students, approach it? Uh, Lucy said she thought it was a little bit boring, and then she heard it read out read out loud, and that helped. You're working with kids that are a little bit older than than what Heidi is referencing there with her daughter but younger than college students that karen's working with do you find that they have a similar response that at first they find this boring and you have to show how this unlocks the story for them or
1: or no uh well i think that um as opposed to explaining the form up front i think that there's a great moment early in the novel that opens itself up to a discussion of the form and that it's Maybe best to wait till you get to that point. Um, and, and the moment when I always step back and and take a look at what we've covered so far and and what the f- you know the framework for the book is is the first time that Victor makes a really glaring contradiction in his account of his childhood. And and I I wait for students to find that, and I always hope that they find it. And I I think that the first. Big contradiction in Victor's account of himself occurs second page of chapter two uh, where in in sequential paragraphs, there are rival claims made about his childhood that simply will not square with each other and at, at the point that you reach that, any student who's even paying mildly close attention is going to say, "How can both of these things be true and I think that that's a great point to to step back and see how many different layers of narration we're in. Um, and, and to talk about competing interests between the different narrators, um, and whose story is being filtered through whose perspective. Yeah. Um, and whose perspective that perspective is being filtered through. Uh, and at that point, um, you can have a conversation about, um, the subjectivity of, of a first person narrator, uh, but introduce it to students in such a way that they can deal with it responsibly i I think that um, I think that the unreliable narrator exists but that in the hands of somebody who's unskilled in hermeneutics the unreliable narrator can just take over your entire interpretive <laughs> strategy for a book and you can come to doubt everything that you read. Um, <laughs> So, so I don't, the fact that some real narrators are not entirely reliable, I don't want that to induce a, a nasty sort of cynicism and, and pure skepticism in all of my students. Yeah. Um,
0: I found myself so even thinking, who do I trust?
1: <laughs> yes, there's no one I can trust and all of this is fake and maybe it's all in someone's head and maybe there's no such thing as reality. I mean, these are, these What's are What's fiction anyway? <laughs> yes. What is fiction? Um, yeah. Are we watching television or is it watching us? You know, They were of, all on drugs anyway. <laughs> that's right. So uh, I, I think that dealing with Victor's unreliability is a great way to start discussing the form of the novel and that you've got to wait for him to be unreliable and for students to see it before, before bringing it up or that it's, it's helpful to, to order uh, the instruction that way. Do
0: you think Shelley's goal... Karen, I'll ask you this first. Do you think she- Shelley's goal is to disorient in, in, in the form? Um, do you think she wants us to be asking who do I trust? You know, some of these things that Josh is talking about, like, uh, although he's saying we want to avoid being cynical, <laughs> being cynical readers, but I mean, is she, is she playing with that to, uh, you know, mess with our expectations and, um, uh, make us question things
3: yeah i i i always hesitate to talk about um authorial intention unless you know we have uh documentation of the author's intention um i think it's more that she really is reflecting in an ingenious way i'll i'll um keep affirming heidi's use of that word um the this new sort of um subjectivity um that defines you know modernity and in particular you know romanticism so i mean the in many ways this novel is about subjectivity I, i mean its content is subjectivity so its form is is uh subjectivity um so i think a real genius or a real prophet or a good poet um sees these things and expresses them, um whether or not it's something that they're, you know, consciously aware of. I'm sure she was, but um yeah, I think she was reflecting this this, you know, new way of of understanding the world through I, subjectivity.
0: I can I can feel listeners yelling at me, wait go back, talk about, you know, make sure you clarify what you mean by that this novel is about subjectivity. Can you, can you, uh, as you know, my, as I'm sure every college professor says, can you unpack that a little bit?
3: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. So, um, so, so subjectivity is this, you know, It is. uh, okay. So I'll, I'll back way up. Um, and I, I actually, I do I do talk about this in my classes, so this is, uh, I should be doing this. Um, so one way that modernity is defined, which, you know, roughly begins with the Enlightenment. Um, so we've got pre-modern, modern, and Let's not get into postmodern. Um, but <laughs> one simple definition of modernity is the turn to the subject, meaning that instead of, you know, the source of of, of knowledge and authority being some objective external being or source, you know, whether God, the church, sacred texts, um, the ultimate source of authority is internal. Um so it's, it's, you are the subject, um, and you turn to yourself for, um, ultimate authority rather than an object external out there, your, you know, your community or your religion. Um, and so, so modernity is in, in all, almost all of its manifestations, it is, its in some way about this subjectivity versus objectivity. Um, but of course these things take a long, long time, you know, and they're, they don't happen overnight. And so I think what we see in romanticism in general is kind of the, the culmination of this turn from the object to the subject. Um, and then after romanticism, we see sort of the, Consequences of that, and that's what we sometimes call post-modernity. Um, so I don't know. I feel like Josh Heidi. I'll stop there for a second. You want to jump in there? I'm not. I'm not the all-knowing authority on subjectivity and and, and modernity.
0: <laughs> Maybe we well, should create a bibliography list. <laughs> that's
2: a great idea. So I love. I love what you're saying within the novels as how we've up to what we've read so far, we see that particular thing that you're saying in a couple of different ways. And one of them is the unreliability of the narrator, as Josh points out, that you're not exactly sure that what Victor is saying is true. We have to take his word for it. Um, and it's very obvious that he contradicts himself and that he's justifying himself. Um, you know, if my father had just said blah, 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 I would have abandoned the whole pursuit. No acknowledgement that he could have asked his father the question, Hey, what do you not like about this book? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So it's those, those are the kinds of things that we see in this novel that are doing exactly what you're saying on that more philosophical level. Um, and and she's, to Josh's point about the unreliable narrator, that it, an unreliable narrator in unskilled hands, you have no clues within the novel, what is the truth? And then you can say things like, am I watching the book or is the book watching me, right? Then you are just, it's just the matrix, <laughs> which was actually a pretty good movie, but still. Um, but the... What Mary Shelley does within this novel is that she makes Victor unreliable, but she embeds uh, different strains of truth that you can cling to so you actually know he's being unreliable, right? And, and that's what makes this not just an unskilled, unreliable narrator, but, but, some, but there's something that you can say if you're paying attention, if you're closely reading, you can say, wait a second, over here there's this, but he's saying this but at the same time she makes him sympathetic largely because of the framing device right because we're already for robert walton we think he's great we can and and he's a double to victor frankenstein right he got he says and for i i notice this in this reading is on page i have the norton critical edition which in a Uh, Very soon, I'm going to say I have the Karen Swallow prior edition. (laughs) So um, he says here on page eight in my book, it's just the second page of the novel. He says, these reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter. And I feel my heart aglow with an enthusiasm which elevates me to heaven. Very very you know very big elevated language there for nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye
0: there's a proverb for your podcast josh
2: right the first time i read this novel i was like i gotta write that in my commonplace book i put like stars by it underlined it right this is so true and then 20 pages later you see a guy who has his eyes fixed on a steady purpose and he is derailing and taking everybody with him right and so there's this paradox um and but it's not a contradiction it's an exploration and and i think that that speaks to what you're saying karen that there is this sense of impression versus expression uh of um you're exploring a a romantic ideal that sounds good, but when you see it play itself out, there's a dark underbelly to it. And she wants to, she wants to talk about that.
0: Mm -hmm. Consequences, I think was the word that Karen used. Josh, go ahead. You, you, uh, you are ready to talk. I can tell you've got something to say.
1: No, actually I I think that Karen and Heidi did a a good job covering the, uh, the subject of subjectivity with the book. I have nothing to add. Okay.
0: Well, we are almost going on an hour here. So what I think we should do is with this first section here, I was wondering if you each have, I guess a a passage, Josh, you already mentioned one that you think is particularly essential within these first chapters to help us, you know, get our bearings, especially as you guys have pointed out, there are these, these, um, these moments, these, these things that seem contradictory, which could be a little bit of create a little bit of dissonance for us as readers. So um, are there, what, what passages would you turn to or point us towards as sort of essential for, for getting our bearings and moving forward with the rest of the book? Josh, can we, can we go through the passage that you were talking about? Would you be up for that? Do yours first since you mentioned it?
1: Absolutely. So this is uh, just inside of, of chapter two. And uh, this is a portion where Victor is reflecting on his childhood and the subject of Victor's childhood and of childhood as a whole will come up over and over and over again. Um, And I think that there's a I think there's a case to be made that because Victor's Alphonse Frankenstein, Victor's father, is, is such a romantic. He likes he enjoys like little children but when little children turn into teenagers he kind of loses his interest in them um the, the romantic loves the little child as a kind of icon of innocence and naivete and spirituality and little children are easy to love teenagers are hard to love and as soon as victor becomes hard to love alphonse is no longer interested in him um and uh, there's more to say on that but but inside just inside of chapter two we come to what I think of as the first glaring contradiction in Victor's account of himself. And uh, so on on the third paragraph in the chapter, we read, no human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. And that's the first sentence in that paragraph. No human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself. My parents were possessed by the very spirit of kindness and indulgence. We felt that they were not the tyrants to rule our lot according to their caprice, but the agents and creators of all the many delights which we enjoyed. When I mingled with other families, I distinctly discerned how peculiarly fortunate my lot was and gratitude assisted the development of filial love. My temper was sometimes violent and my passions vehement." And he goes on uh, to qualify this statement, but here on two separate paragraphs, we have no human being could have passed a happier childhood than myself, my temper was sometimes violent. So at the point that we, we hear that his temper was sometimes violent, uh, I begin to question whether this childhood is actually as perfect as he claims it is. And I think that he wants his childhood to be perfect. And Victor wants to believe that his father cares about him very much. But the, the truth is that his childhood is not as perfect as he suggests that it is. And it's not as perfect as he wants it to be. And Victor is going to make excuses for his father for the rest of the novel. Actually, all the characters in the book will make excuses for Alphonse. When we get into Victor's life in college, the excuses that are made for Victor's father never coming to visit him are increasingly absurd over the remainder of the novel and are finally proven to have been just straight up lies by the end of the novel. But this is the first moment, I think, where we get the impression that Victor has a reason to lie. And the first reason that he has to lie, it seems, is to protect his father and to make his own life seem as though it used to be good. Victor wants to justify his father. And I think that that's, I find it compelling that the first lie he seems to tell is one that he tells to make his parents out to seem better than they were. So, do you think, any for either of you? Do you think that that
0: he is trying to make them look better, or he he remembers it differently than it was? Like, do you think it's an active act of deception? Shall we say, like he's trying to actively make us think? They're different than they were, or do you, th- or do you think that it's he's not aware of the self-deception that he's engaging in?
1: Um, so, David uh, uh, Victor is going to he'll he'll make a few critical comments about his father in the course of the book. Um, but were Victor to to actually criticize his father um, for the reasons that his father deserves to be criticized, Victor would simultaneously have to admit his own moral failings Uh, because one of the, one of the chief ways that Alphonse lets Victor down um, Mm. is by uh, sequestering the whole family off away from Geneva, where no one will pry into the absolutely bizarre relationship that Alphonse has with his child bride, Caroline,
0: which of course is evidenced by the fact that he's, he's only reading these ancient scientists and has never been told by anybody that there's new things (laughs)
1: Yeah, uh, it, it seems as though if he were actually going to school on a regular basis, somebody would have clued him into this. But, but because so you're saying it's Franken- a cult. Well, I, I think that they're dangerously uh, cut off from the world. And, and Victor needs to or Alphonse needs to cut the family off from the world because um, because the whole family is just uh, filthy with unorthodox sexuality. Um Alphonse's relationship with this 18-year-old or 17-year-old girl that he marries is odd enough, his friend's daughter. Um, But because the family is so closed off to outsiders, they have to acquire a bride for Victor when he's young. Um, They need somebody for Victor to marry who's not actually an outsider because they're terrified of outsiders. No one in this family wants to be criticized. No one in the family ever asks tough questions of one another, Uh, and they don't like being asked tough questions. And so were Victor to really criticize his father for the reasons that he deserves to be criticized, Victor would have to admit that his own reluctance to have any company in the world was wrong, and that Victor's desire for solitude, not just solitude, but Victor's hatred of other people, is, is despising of human beings, grew out of this um, fear of otherness that was instilled in him from the time he was young. So I I think Victor's need to protect his father is actually a need to protect himself at the same time um, because Victor absorbs all the sins of his father.
0: I was thinking about this. Um, Is is Victor's father, is it an act of prejudice against the other, as you said, or is it a need to... I'll put it in a silly way to uh, to hide his own oddities from the world at large. So is he is he more concerned about hiding who he is, or is he actually does he actually dislike the other? Is he you know?
1: I, he strikes me as a as a bit of a misanthrope, actually, um, and and I think that he wants to hide away from other people so that no one can question the choices that he's made. Um, but I think that Victor's own hatred of human beings is is probably borrowed from his father. Um because his father, I mean, we learn in the first couple chapters, uh, they don't like company. They don't like to live with other people. They have a house in Geneva, but they live five miles away. Um and there's there's only this small number of characters that are ever mentioned outside the Frankenstein family because they're they're just so far away from Mm. everyone. So I mean I guess the short answer to your question is I think it's a little bit of both.
0: That's fair uh, Heidi, do you have a passage? I do. Uh, on,
2: in my book, it's on page 34. It's in chapter three. Um, and it is the section it's right in the middle of the section in which, uh, Victor Frankenstein is describing his, uh, how he has found the secret to life and has become obsessed with it and is creating, uh, what will become the monster begins with the summer months passed. The summer months passed while I was thus engaged, heart and soul, in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage, but my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. And the same feelings which made me neglect the scenes around me caused me also to forget those friends who were so many miles absent and whom I had not seen for so long a time. I knew my silence disquieted them, and I well remembered the words of my father, Josh. I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. You must pardon me if I regard any interruption in your correspondence as a proof that your other duties are equally neglected. It's a short little paragraph. There's a couple of things in it that stand out to me. One is the, the... relationship with his father, as you point out, you already addressed that. Uh, so I'm not going to go on anymore with that. It's a very complex relationship as you, as you point out. And a lot of different, uh, interpretations of this exist. I know several people who think that they have the perfect family. Um, and several people who see, as you see, this is very distorted, right? So there's, a, there's, there's an ambiguity there. That's, I mean, just Goes back to our conversation about the narrator and and um, what we can believe and what we cannot believe, um, and then I also want to point out uh, as as Karen has also has has said this is a romantic novel and what did the romantics value, right, relationships in nature, and these are the things that are completely forgotten and neglected by by Victor Frankenstein. These are the consolations that the romantics would acknowledge. These are the best things in the world, right? Is love with capital L, family love, idealized love in some way. And then uh, whether it's romantic or friendship, as we've already seen in uh, an idealization of friendship in this novel, uh, and romantic love and family, those are the romantic ideals of love. And then also nature, And the beauties of nature, the consolations of nature, my own experiences and impressions of nature. And these are the things that are neglected by Victor Frankenstein when he goes into his obsessive desire to create life um, out of where where either life does not exist or from death itself. Um, So, and then there's also this idealization of forbidden knowledge. And I know we're going to talk about this. This is called the modern Prometheus. That was the original title or subtitle of the novel. And Prometheus was a a mythological character, a titan in Greek mythology, who gave fire to humans for their consolation in life against the will of Zeus. Or in other words, he went against the will of his father, and the authority in order to provide forbidden knowledge to these underlings uh, to the humans who didn't deserve it. Um, and that's a huge contemplation of this novel is why is this knowledge forbidden? is it okay if I have it? Is it destructive? Is it the knowledge itself that's destructive? Or is it my single-minded pursuit in neglect of these other things that's, that, that is destructive? Um, and so I, I see a lot of those threads coming together just in this simple paragraph.
0: Karen, I'll turn to you and, and ask you about your passage. We can come back to discuss some of these these threads. Okay. Uh,
3: um, all right. So I'm going to skip through a couple short passages from letter one. Okay. Um, again, because this has to do with the form, but it also touches on really the things that Heidi and Josh just talked about. So um, in letter one, we're hearing from Walton, and I just want to show how, how Shelley builds up and, and uh, lays a foundation for all of these themes that we'll be talking about. Um, so... Again, letter one, skipping through um, the father issue, a few paragraphs in, at the end of the paragraph that begins, these reflections have dispelled. Um, Walton says, um, these volumes that he's reading were my study day and night and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt as a child on learning that my father's dying injunction had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark in a seafaring life, he's on the sea. He's he's defied his father's dying injunction. Um, a couple of paragraphs later, Walton says, and now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Again, this seeking of glory, he talks about that again and again. And then uh, one last passage from Walton in the second paragraph, the middle of the second paragraph of letter two, no, actually the beginning of, of, paragraph two in letter two but I have one want which I have never yet been able to satisfy and the absence of the object of which I now feel as a most severe evil I have no friend Margaret when I am glowing with the enthusiasm of success there will be none to participate my joy if I am assailed by disappointment no one will ever no one will endeavor to sustain me in dejection I shall commit my thoughts to paper, it is true, but that is a poor medium for the communication of feeling. I desire the company of a man who could sympathize me, whose eyes would reply to mine. So we get this idea of friendship, you know, like soulmate companionship. Um, again, a theme uh, among the romantics, as he- Heidi just mentioned, but also a very strong theme in this book.
0: Hmm. There's the uh, I underlined the... Uh... the the last sentence of that paragraph too, where he says, I greatly need a friend who would have sense enough not to despise me as romantic and affection (laughs) enough for me to endeavor to regulate my mind. Mm. And then, of course, he goes through and lists all these people that are going to work for him, right? The lieutenant, a man of wonderful Mm. courage and enterprise, madly desirous of glory, an Englishman unsoftened by cultivation who retains some of the most, the noblest endowments of humanity, and the master is a person of excellent disposition. He's heroically generous, so he's you, you can see he's looking in all these different places for that for that uh mm-hmm. character so it's, um, so on the one hand, we have the sort of broken relationships that Josh has been talking about with the family, and then we've got these long you know we've got even Frankenstein at the end of chapter two. He goes to the the university or whatever, and he, he, how does the guy, he, he goes up to the professor, and essentially the professor says something like, I'm glad to have another mentor, you know? And so you've got, that's another example, a disciple, he says, I think. That's another example of these, there's all these different kinds of relationships that are being identified in this early section. And one of the things I was wondering is, how many of these relationships are actually um, healthy? <laughs> uh, and what does a healthy relationship look like within the context of this book? What, do you think that that is something that Shelley is actually trying to explore? Or Is that me just reading? you know, I kept coming across these these questions of, you know we've got the father and the son relationships. We see it twice as you you've pointed out there is the there's even uh, uh, mother. And children relationships, there's the uh, the spousal relationships, many of which are a little bit distorted. Uh, there's mentors and disciples, and there's creator and creation, and all these different relationships. So are there clues in this book as to what you know rightly ordered relationships should actually look like that, that you know within the context of this story, w- what should we be looking for in terms of which relationships we can trust and believe in? as rightly ordered, and which ones we cannot. Josh, you just unmuted yourself, so I'm going to yeah. take that as a yeah. hand-raising.
1: I, I was going to say, we're going to have to wait until the very middle of the novel before we finally get a healthy relationship in the book. Uh, I don't think it's until we hit the interlude of the, of, um, the cottage family that we finally get an image of what uh, what a really healthy relationship looks like. Uh, all the central characters in the novel, though, uh, are always cut off from those relationships. Um, it, the romantic relationships as well. Uh, so, I mean, w- there's potential for a great relationship in between the three um, younger children when the novel begins, between Clairvall and Elizabeth and Victor. Uh, but any sane person who reads of these three friends cannot help but seeing that Elizabeth and Clairval are obviously the romantic match, but uh, their temperaments are perfectly suited for one another. Uh, Victor is all wrong for his sister uh, in, for a number of different reasons. Uh, and yet Victor stands between these two characters that seem as though they might have uh, a, a plausible romance.
2: This is a real question I'd, I've wrestled with as I've read through this novel, because as we've all said, Mary Shelley herself does not come from an ideal family right so I've always been curious Yeah, is she did she put these dysfunctional relationships in here I mean we didn't they didn't even have the language for that the way that we do right um did did she put those in here for <laughs> us to pass judgment on? Or is this just a regular family in her mind?
3: Well, this is one of the important distinctions between, this is the one that I do know of, uh, between the 1818 and 1831 hmm. editions is is the character of Elizabeth, who in the 1818 version is um, mm-hmm. is a, 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 a first cousin to Victor, and in the later edition becomes basically an orphan that the family adopts. So there is no relation, no, inc- I mean, I, I don't think, I think first cousins at that time were permissible um, romantic partners, but still this theme of incest that we see hinted throughout the novel, depending at more or less, depending on the version um, is one that was reflected in in uh, Shelley's life. I mean, there was a lot of incest going on um, in her relationships and those of her friends. Mm. Um, and we can get into that another time if we want to. Uh, but it's significant that when she changed the novel in 1831, that's one of the changes that she made is she made that relationship between Victor and Elizabeth um, not, potentially incestuous. So it's like she was, she, right. Mary Shelley grew up in dysfunction and in incestuous relationships. Uh, and when she became older and we moved from that, she understood them better for what they were and tried to correct them in her novel.
0: Mm. <clears throat> How does that correction or well, that, that alteration from edition to edition change the novel? In your opinion?
3: Yeah, it makes it a little, it makes it less scandalous and less creepy. <laughs> um, sure. You know, so yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, um, but I mean, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just, it's, it, it just, to me, it's, I, I, it's just so interesting to think about in terms of her life, Shelley's life and development as a person. Um, I mean, I'm so happy that she, her life moved towards greater health and uh, wisdom and truth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, apart from the novel.
0: I, I guess I just can't, I keep thinking about, does that change? Or does it change like that? And there are others. Does that um, uh, soften? So, I mean, does it soften the, mm-hmm. the, 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 mm-hmm. the what she's able to say does it does making it less dark uh make does that make it um does that change what the novel is able to say or does it change the priorities of the novel itself
3: well it's interesting because the passage that um josh picked out about uh the you know victor's temper as a child is not in the the 1818 edition so again it's like mary was trying to almost make the novel less romantic because um she kind of gives more of a she she makes Victor more personally an individually culpable for his mistakes in the second version whereas in the first i don't think she separated herself out as and her characters out as much from the worldview. i'm not sure if this is making sense i'm kind of thinking out loud here um, <laughs> well i so, thought so, so that, that was my yeah.
2: question like is she because as josh pointed out like we read this from we read this and are like this family's weird but <laughs> there's but would it have been weird in her time was it the we did older men marry younger, like significantly younger women and sweep them off into the country and raise. Like, is this, was she intending to idealize this family or is she intending to portray a disordered family? I'm curious, like, what do y'all think about that? I
3: think she was portraying what she knew. And as she grew older, she realized it was messed up. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Which, hmm. your, to your point about the form, how she adapts it uh, for the 1831 edition, I, I think that supports your point.
1: I could almost believe that an ideal family would necessarily be a disordered one.
2: And that's a great point too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that any family that's ideal <laughs> is so unreal that it can't help <laughs> but be <being> disordered. <laughs>
0: There's something wrong there. <laughs> so, Karen, you mentioned that the, the the passage Josh was reading wasn't in the eighteen eighteen edition, and I I,
3: I can't was, find it unless it's far yeah, removed.
0: I think I think there's a passage that's similar in chapter one. There's a passage that begins, "No youth could have passed more happily than mine. My parents were indulgent and my companions amiable." Um,
3: oh, I mean the part about his temper.
0: And, wasn't and, isn't oh well, right? So what I was going to say is I think that it. I think that. She's moving. it seems like she's moving a couple things around there, um, but I have to go compare the texts against mm-hmm. each other. But that would be really interesting to know if she softens or adds the contradictions from edition to edition. Mm-hmm. Are there, you know, what contradictions did she add in 1831? Which ones did she did she take out? Is she emphasizing or de-emphasizing those kind of contradictions? Because that would at least suggest. I mean, that suggests a degree of uh, care. <laughs> If she's de-emphasizing or emphasizing something like a contradiction, um, and it and it might even make the novel more or less complex in certain as it relates to certain themes. So even if she doesn't have letters to tell us what she was thinking, it certainly implies what she was thinking. Right. So so Karen, when you're when you're working on your annotated edition of eighteen eighteen, the eighteen eighteen edition, are you how much are you going to? address a change like that you know mm-hmm. are you going to say this was mm-hmm. not in the this is there's something here that is not in the 1831 mm-hmm. that changes how you read it or mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't change how you read it i don't
3: yeah yeah i've had to already think about that question i think i'll address at least the major ones i'm not going to do like a you know a, i think there's probably out on the internet somewhere um somebody's already done they a, a line by line or what like every difference i mean i don't know but my suspicion is there's some somebody's done that or a few somebody's, but i'll, I'll probably address the major ones that i think um, give us some insight into how to read the, the 1818 one
0: mm. well on that note where we should probably wrap this up we're almost at an hour and a half um so karen on that on what on that note there can you give us um one thing that as you are reading through this 1818 edition and you're thinking about this next section of this next passage and moving deeper into the book that you're going to be looking for that you suggest that listeners who are reading along look for.
3: I'm going to be looking for the contradictions that Josh has uh, been talking about. um, Because I think, I think this idea of the unreliable narrator is central to what Shelley's doing in both editions. Um, So I'm, I'm going to be watching more for those.
0: Hmm. Do you just quick side note, where do you rank this book In terms of the unreliable, the canon of unreliable narrator uh, novels. Uh, I
3: don't know. Anyone else want to answer that? I don't. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: No, that's uh, fair. Throws things
2: at us all the time.
1: (laughs) It's at the absolute top. I've got a list of a thousand Mm -hmm. of them, and I've placed this one number one. Do you actually have a list of a thousand?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like an exercise that you would you would uh. You would keep. It's a journal that's just dedicated to listing unreliable narrative narrator novels. <laughs> Heidi, what are you going to look for, uh, and and what do you suggest that people uh, watch for?
2: Uh, you know my my central question is always who is the monster in this book? I've already said that a couple of times, uh, and I, I think that I in in light of our, you know, a, a work of great work of literature is not just for its own time; it's for all times like and and i think as i was reading this in light of current events um it's a good question right like we're all kind of asking that question right now um not in those terms but that's that's a that's a big question for where we're at right now and um as i was rereading this novel i was thinking just how very relevant it is to ask the question both internally and in our own souls and relationships and also in light of what, of whatever's going on in the public square. What, is it as simple as asking who is the monster or is there, are there multiple factors that contribute to uh, a larger problem? And I, and I think that's a lot of what she's getting at here. And so I'm, I'm reading it hopefully with, you know, I hope a degree of humility um, to to ask those questions for myself and for my, you know, our land right now, how are we contributing to <coughs> problems? And how do these things happen? How do these divisions happen? Because we're about to hit a lot of very great divisions in this novel.
0: Mm. This question of who the monster is, is, is kind of interesting because uh, my kid saw that I was, that Frankenstein was on the desk and uh, Coulter's eight. And he's, he's, he thought, he somehow he thought that the monster was called Frankenstein, and if Everybody you does. go online, that's a pretty like you go on Reddit and search certain things. I mean, I wouldn't recommend you go on Reddit, but you know, if you are on Reddit and you're looking at it's it it's uh, remarkable how many people think that <coughs> excuse me think that the monster is Frank it's called Frankenstein, and uh, maybe it, it is makes, maybe it, <laughs> it exactly it makes for some, but it, it, I, and I said to him I think you're hitting on a. I think you're hitting on something there, child who has never read this book. Uh, Josh, same question for you:
1: Uh, what to look for in the in the coming chapters, Um, or what you're going to be looking for? What's you know what's what's going to be intriguing to you? uh, Confrontation. What are the confrontations that need to happen that are not happening, and why are people avoiding confrontations? I'll I'll go ahead and and tack that onto Heidi's observation that the book seems. uh, uh, a timely read. What are the confrontational conversations that are not happening? Mm.
0: That's good. Well, uh, with that, I guess we'll wrap this up. Thanks so much for your your insight and your time. And I'm really looking forward to reading this and learning from you all. I already feel better about the book after one episode. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you, um, Karen. Where can people learn more about you? Your books, I assume, are available wherever books are sold, but as you know, do you want to do anything else you want to plug?
3: Um, just, you know, if you if want more information, you can check out my website, com or check me out on Twitter where I spend too much time, KS prior.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I I failed to mention earlier, I mentioned your, your annotated editions, but of course you recently in the last couple of years published on Reading Well, which is a much beloved book on literature, literature, Twitter, And uh, Literature Instagram. There's a lot of Instagram posts with that book cover on it. So people should check that book out as well. Josh, what about you? What do you got to plug? What are you talking about on the podcast this week?
1: Um, If I can plug anything, I'm going to plug Blasphemers, my collection of short stories that's available on Amazon uh, that has sold a grand total of uh, 29 copies in the last six months. That's... uh, (laughs) <laughs> i guess everybody you self-published who, that right self-published that's right everyone who dabbles in academia has to have a collection of short stories that no one ever reads and that one's mine so are you
0: trying to like are you like is this the david bentley hard in you or something
1: that's right this is um this is my the devil and pierre garnett uh <laughs> that um <laughs> that no one reads and no one knows that he's written so
0: okay well head over to amazon and buy uh, josh's <laughs> book heidi what about you
2: isn't 30 poems coming out soon david
0: uh yeah any day, well actually it's it, the any day arrived from the printer so, yes, do you want to talk about that or should we just move on?
2: <laughs> I think you should talk about it. It's your book. Yeah, we, I just contributed. W-
0: well, we have a collection of a, a book. It's a collection of poems. It's called Thirty Poems to Memorize (Parentheses) Before It's Too Late, and uh, we gathered a group of poets and teachers and whittled it down to thirty poems that are chosen specifically for their memorizableness if you will and then each poem has um, a, a brief reflection so people like uh, James Matthew Wilson contributed to it and Morris Manning the poet and Anthony Eslin and uh, Heidi so that book is available on Amazon and on our website and wherever else books are sold so that's very kind of you to mention that Um, All right. Well, with that, say farewell for Josh Gibbs, for Karen Swallow Pryor, for Heidi White. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.